right, welcome back to the Religionless Podcast, everyone. I am Jeff Turner, your host, and today I am honored to have with us Mitch Horowitz. Um, Mitch is an author of several books. I don't even know how many books you've written at this point, but a lot, right? A historian of um, esotericism, um, Western esotericism, esotericism and mysticism in general, and just an all-around interesting guy. And it's just really, really an honor and pleasure to have you with us today, Mitch. Thank you, man. Glad to be here. So what we typically do on this show is, uh, as I was telling you uh, prior to um, the recording, is that um, our show is aimed, uh, it's aimed at an audience of folks who maybe consider themselves post-religious, post-Christian, post-fundamentalist, if, if nothing else. Um, and so typically the guests I have on, I have kind of tell their own story of religious deconstruction, maybe a little bit about their background, where they came from. Um, what, how their faith transformed over the years and how they arrived at where they are presently at. I mean, I'm not 100% sure if that really applies to you in your own journey, but uh, I would still like if you could just to give us a little bit of information, a little bit of info about yourself, um, a little bit of maybe your own history, how you got into doing what you're doing today, and, um, and then we'll see where the conversation takes us from there. I'm happy to do that. I, I very freely describe myself as a believing historian. I'm a participant in many of the esoteric and alternative spiritual movements that I document. I write about them both in history and in practice. And in fact, most historians of religion are believing historians. They emerge in one way or another from the congregations that they're writing about. Sometimes they're current and active parts of those congregations. Sometimes they're maybe on the more heterodox side of those congregations where they left. But it's, it's very common that historians of religion have some practice and participation and history with the movements they're writing about. They don't often point to that because they feel like it might appear to compromise a sense of objectivity or critical thought. But my feeling is actually the opposite. I think that getting close to a movement can give you uh, insights and perspectives on the values that emanate from that movement, whether those values are achieved, whether those values are failed at, uh, in in ways that perhaps uh, ordinary fieldwork cannot always disclose. I myself grew up in an observant Jewish household in the borough of Queens in New York City. I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah. I was fairly involved in Judaism until probably about my early 30s. And at that point, I personally found myself disaffected by the Jewish liturgy. It's very beautiful. It goes back to the medieval period. Some of it's older than that as practiced. But um, it wasn't really speaking to my needs. The congregational model was not speaking to my needs. Call and response prayer, however beautiful however steeped in tradition or even antiquity, was not something I, I was personally responding to. I felt a great psychological need in myself that very often revolved around wrestling with anxiety, which has been a lifelong issue for me. And I think my search began to take me more in the direction of therapeutic or self-help movements, more into what might be loosely described as new age culture, which I really see as a, a radically ecumenical therapeutic spirituality. And specifically, though, I got interested in what might be called the occult, which is an outsider approach to spirituality, which uh, if one conceives of, spiritual, of spirituality as I do, of uh, uh, denoting the extra physical, 
the occult seems to seeks to employ a whole range of practices that relate the individual to this extra physical dimension of life whose effects perhaps can be felt on and, and through us at least that's the that's the gambit and you know quite frankly i came to feel over the last several years as i sifted through many different religious traditions both uh new religious, what might be called new religious movements, what might be called esoteric movements, what might be called the historic faiths. I came to feel, quite frankly, that the spiritual search, the search for the extra physical is, in many respects, a search for personal power. It's a search to heighten the individual's own capacities and agencies, which doesn't mean that it frees you from ethics or pushes you towards some sort of a Epicurean lifestyle or, or, or means that you don't have obligations to others or values which serve as, as foundations of your life. But I, I did come to feel that the elephant in the room of spirituality is that we, all of us, are looking for some heightened sense of personal agency, identity, selfhood, power. You know, mm-hmm. to put it in the simplest terms. And yeah. A lot of people shy from using that term because they feel it sounds amoral if, or even corrupt. I don't use it that way. But I do feel the need to be really blunt about that. And that's mm-hmm. that's also directed my search. No, that's amazing. I, um, you know, I, I told you just briefly off air. Uh, my own story is that I was a pastor for 12 years. I grew up in fundamentalist evangelicalism, um, a looser brand of it in my own household. But then I later dipped my toes into the more extreme end of the pool and quickly, quickly found myself drowning in it and um, built a, a a career off of that whole thing. And um, you know, it's interesting within that movement. It is, it is, it is emphasized that you have to sort of relinquish control and um, you know, relinquish control of your life into into the hands of God, and um, you know that typically ends up looking like into the hands of whoever your pastor is or whoever your <laughs> bishop or overseer is. But but that's kind of the that's kind of the vibe within a lot of those movements is that you know if you're trying to control, you know, they would call that well, that's a spirit of witchcraft. And when they use that term, they mean something very different than what you and I might mean about it. Uh, mean by that in a conversation, they mean of it's course. some kind of you know diabolical thing you're trying to usurp god and take his place um you know and and certainly you can find passages of scripture i suppose that could sort of you know uphold that idea but um you know i I remember reading in galatians 5 about the quote-unquote fruits of the spirit and you know love joy peace patience all of those good things and then i read one that i'd read all i mean my entire life but i had never read it the way i read it this particular time and it was that the fruit of the spirit is self-control and every other time I had read that, I had read that as meaning, well, you know, so you stop at one drink instead of five, you, you know, you control your quote unquote fleshly sinful appetites, but self-control could also just simply mean being in control of yourself, being in control of your life, being in control of your own destiny, taking the reins, if you will, and guiding yourself instead of being guided along by ideology or theology or this, that, or the other. And, um, you know, I've really found in this last season of my life, some of those last vestiges of that sort of fundamentalist uh, upbringing really being shaken off of me by embracing this very principle that that my life is a gift, however one understands that. I still identify with Christianity, although I do so in a more perennialist way of looking at it, where I'm open to 
all sorts of things from all sorts of traditions. I just use a particular language because it's what's native to me. But but I've found that within the context, how should I say this? That I've found myself taking control of my life. And I found that even after I deconstructed everything that I thought could be deconstructed, I was an atheist while being a pastor for about a year or so mm. because I couldn't reconcile what was going on inside of me with... Uh, you know, it was just a very difficult season. And, and those who listen to the show know that story all too well, and I won't bore them with it. But um, it was it was a difficult season. And, and but when I came out of it, you know, it was like, you feel like you've deconstructed all of this stuff, and you feel like it's fallen away, and you're free, and then you start trying to live a normal life. And you realize, mm, you know, I still tended more towards maybe a maybe a bastardization of 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 Taoist philosophy of maybe, you know, just kind of you know, letting go. And it was still kind of an abdication of responsibility, right? It was less probably the way it would have actually been applied by those who come from those cultures and traditions and more me trying to strain it to the filter of that fundamentalism of, you know, still trying to relinquish control and not taking it myself. And, um, you know, so over the last year or so, especially uh, over the last year and a half or so, I suppose since COVID, that's one thing I've been really being challenged on is taking control of my own life, con- creating the kind of life that I want to be living instead of being dragged around by the horse of, you know, vestigial fundamentalism. And, um, you know, that's where I think the work that you're doing, well, there's so much about the work that you're doing that is helpful and can be helpful, but especially for those who are um, in my audience who are coming from similar backgrounds as my own, that's where I think your work could be just absolutely helpful because it's, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to stop because I could, I could go on and talk forever. And this is, <laughs> this is an interview with you, Mitch. So I want you to, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any thoughts to share on, on what I just said? Well, sure. There's a, a lot to unpack there. You know, human nature is remarkably consistent and I'm struck by your saying that people who are of a Christian or an evangelical or fundamentalist orientation very often think in terms of turning their lives over to Christ. But what happens in practice, as you alluded, is that they more often turn their lives over to whomever their pastor is or whoever the leader of their spiritual community is. And obviously, one sees that universally. that, That becomes, that's a big issue in the guru system, you know, emerging from Vedic culture, especially as it's translated here into the Western world. It's an issue within different esoteric political groups where you're told to verify things for yourself, but the underlying proposition that's really being put to you is that once you've verified exactly what your group leader has found, then come back. And and right. and, and 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 if that's not the case, then you know, go away again and re-verify it until you do. You know, so <laughs> yeah. we all find multiple ways in all walks of life, including in the social sciences for that matter, to uh, statistically or in other respects uh, arrive at exactly uh, what we want. And most people come to either the state of belief, the state of practice, uh, the statistical warranty that confirms whatever it is they went in believing to begin with. And that is a malady of human nature. We very rarely are capable of authentic questioning, we very rarely are capable of authentic searching. And, you know, sometimes I have to hold that mirror up to myself. And uh, right now I'm working on a new book entitled Daydream Believer. And it is my best effort to come to grips with what I think is really valid and true and defensible in 
what is sometimes called new thought or mind causation. Uh, it mm. goes under popular terms like law of attraction or the secret or the power of positive thinking, none of which are really my choice uh, terms for all kinds of reasons that I go into in the book. But uh, I'm making an effort to distill what I think are the very sound and actionable instincts from within that tradition, which has built up within modern transcendental culture, say over the past 150 years or so. And one of the things I'm working on, it's probably my penultimate chapter in the book, is a chapter on psychical research, ESP research, of which I'm a big supporter and advocate. And yeah, I've had to ask myself a question just early this morning since I've been up since about 6 a.m. or so working on this book and pouring through material, some of which gets statistically very complex. And the truth is, uh, the evidence for things in, in studies of either parapsychology or traditional psychology across literature that may have endured for decades and may have been very heavily scrutinized is sometimes a sm relatively small statistical blip or, or anomaly. And people have rightly raised the concern, not just about ESP research, but about social science research in general, you know, what if our foundational models are flawed because there are different ways that you can read the data. And there are very many different ways that you can take a, a, a pool of data subject it to different analyses and get the result that you're looking for, or certain results might get canceled out by factors that, 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 that may be outside of the purview of somebody who's looking at a paper, including fraud. And I think fraud is probably a greater problem in the general social sciences than it is actually in parapsychology, where it's struggled against with uh, considerable uh, vociferousness and vitality nowadays. Um, but I had to ask myself, what if I'm wrong about the ESP thesis? You know, I've rested uh, so much on it. I'm giving a talk on it next month. I speak on it with increasing regularity. I'm dedicating a chapter to it. You know, uh, the skeptics are unpersuasive because they're they're so coarse and and glib and and very often uh, willfully uh, unfamiliar with some of the material that they're critiquing. Um, so I'm not so much influenced by the skeptics. But what if I came upon incontrovertible evidence or some body of it suggestive that, you know, I'm wrong. Would I be able to accept it or would I explain it away? You know, I'm afraid I would explain it away because I am just absolutely struck again and again by the extent to which our belief systems are self-perpetuating and we can explain away just about anything. And if I look at that and see that malady in, in the skeptics with whom I disagree, uh, and I certainly disagree with their intellectual style and what I detect to be a cynicism, a willingness to sort of flip over the chessboard rather than to accept that the game is flowing in the wrong direction from, from, uh, from the player. It, it, nonetheless, you know, what maladies have I got that, that, that might make me resistant to contrary evidence. So I have to ask that about myself as well, because the search, if it's anything, you know, has to throw us open to radical questions and, and possibilities, or it really just becomes dead. You know, it really, yeah. really just becomes dead. And that's a general problem of human nature, both for spiritual and, and secular people alike, or for those who are questioning. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And that, uh, that that's tempting me to head down a particular um, rabbit trail. So, so you bring up, you were speaking of new thought and um, that's, I suppose you could say you're a leader in the, the modern new thought movement, correct? Which is often called mind causation or basically a belief that the mind has maybe give us a quick definition of, of new thought, what it is. Well, new thought is a movement that the term itself came into use in the 1890s. It grew out of the transcendental atmosphere of New England, where people were interested in mental healing, prayer healing, mind cure, etc. Uh, the movement of Christian science uh, was, was a burgeoning uh, religion at that time. And uh, basically, new thought holds the belief that thoughts are causative. And yeah. it's been popularized under some of the labels I was referencing earlier, like power of positive thinking. Yeah. Okay. Which often gets a very, it often gets a very bad rap or, or labeled as being yes. kind of immature, or as I've heard you say before, spirituality with training wheels on, um, <laughs> you know, but here's my thought. You were, you were talking about, um, you know, if, if it was shown to you that maybe this isn't ESP is the example you were using, maybe it isn't what you want it to be. Um, I'm thinking because when I was a pastor, when I was a more fundamentalist Christian or a Christian of a more fundamentalist bent, and I kind of lost my faith and became an atheist, there was, there was an experience that happened. There was this kind of letting go of it. And then there was a gradual return of it. But the way it returned to me was it, it was, it returned to me in a different form. And the last book I wrote is called The Atheistic Theist, Why There Is No God and You Should Follow Him. And that's kind of, if people ask me what I am, I usually say I'm an atheistic theist. I, I'm an unbelieving believer. I, I kind of, you know, it's, it's like, I don't necessarily have the certainty I once had that God is, but I've also found that if I live as though God is, I tend to live better, right? So I don't necessarily have to have it be true. And I have no, um, I have no, well, I, I will say I have no, I don't think I have any delusions or illusions about that. Mary Louise von, von Franz once said, it's one thing to be a naive idealist. It's another thing, thing to be a critical realist. It's a, another thing entirely to have no more illusions, but to still hold the inner flame. And that's kind of what I aim for is to be a person who it could be shown to me that it's not really real in the way that I think of it. And this kind of post-enlightenment definition of reality, right? Or something that's provable. But yet at the same time, there's principles that I can apply that just seem to make life work better, right? And so I'm wondering, even in this, even in terms of like new thought, so the belief that the mind has causative properties, the belief that one can sort of frame and create and shape their own reality through their thoughts, and maybe even tone down a little bit from maybe like, the secret or things like that, that people might have misgivings about, I, you know, whatever, because people have misgivings about a lot of things these days. But even if you took the more naive approach to new thought away, do you think it's still a positive and a good way to live, to believe that what I think about is what I can create? Like, even if the maybe naive illusions about it are gone, right? I mean, I, and I don't even want to call them na naive illusions. It's a little bit insulting. And I don't really think that way myself. So I don't want to use, use language that's not my own. But I think you get what I'm saying. You know, maybe sure, like the first course. time you ever heard it and you're hyped up about it kind of thing. If all of that's gone, do you think these principles are still deep enough philosophical principles that can be applied to life that they're 
positive and that they still can, um, it's still something worth living by, even if one can't prove it. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, obviously, you know, it's easy to fall off the side of the log that says it's still a good way to live, you know, behaving mm-hmm. with a positive attitude or positive psychology is still a good way to live. And I, 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 it's hard to argue with that, you know, I mean, sure. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you're, you're a better person to be around, you're a better person in relationships, you know, it, it's not too much of a stretch then to get into mind-body benefits, you know, reductions in hypertension, acceleration of healing, you know, things that I think are fairly provable and, sure. and settled science at this point. So one could fall off a log in the direction of saying it's a psychological benefit and that's that. Then I suppose there's the other side of the question of, of whether it perhaps limits the individual. You know, for example, it must have been early in during the pandemic in about April of 2020. I had just, I had COVID myself early in the pandemic. I was pretty much isolated throughout March and April. And um, I got to thinking about all kinds of different subjects. It was a very fertile time for me in terms of writing. And one morning I got up and I wrote an essay questioning the imperative for forgiveness. And I found that to be a very fertile exercise. And it was funny. I I got a lot of pushback from editors on that essay, but I got a lot of really lovely letters from different readers who felt a sense of relief that finally somebody from a spiritual perspective had raised the question of whether forgiveness, which seems to be at the foundation of so much of Abrahamic spirituality, more so in Christianity, I think, than in Judaism, mm-hmm. that and that they felt somewhat smothered by it if it wasn't something that was working for them psychologically or ethically. I mean, forgiveness is at the very center of the recovery movement, the 12-step movement, a movement for which I have a lot of admiration. Forgiveness is at the heart of different New Age teachings like Course in Miracles. Uh, Forgiveness is clearly at the heart of a good deal of the New Testament. And one could say, and, and I've had friends who have made the case very persuasively, that it served a profoundly important social role. Where would we as a human community be if these ancient feuds never healed and so on. And all that is is fair and reasonable. But I, I also began to ask myself the question of whether forgiveness as an imperative, as an ethical spiritual <clears throat> imperative was rightly suited to every life or situation or circumstance. Because one does hear it used both in recovery, spirituality, traditional uh, Christian Judeo-Christian, often spirituality, New Age spirituality, therapeutic spirituality, that it's an absolute must. In fact, it's funny, I'm um, publishing a book of essays in the year 2022, and in that book I reprint this piece, Questioning Forgiveness, but um, the person who wrote the catalog copy for the book with all the best intentions said, something to the effect of, I extol the power of forgiveness, whereas actually I do the exact opposite and I had to correct that. But, but naturally, when the term forgiveness comes up, everyone thinks in a uniform way. Everyone thinks, well, yes, of course, you know, you got to forgive to live and so forth and so on. And I've given talks on forgiveness. And um, I, 
I found that there were certain people in my life who had done things that uh, I could not forgive as years had mm. passed. These weren't necessarily things that sink to the level of lowest acts of evil. Very few of us deal with acts of ultimate evil uh, in our lives, you know, at, at least on a quotidian scale. And so I'm not going to haul off and tell horror stories about what this or that person did, but there were certain things that I had wrestled with for years, think about uh, frequently, and I couldn't find my way to forgive. And I began to question whether that imperative was serving a, a sound purpose or not, or whether in fact there might be a healthier purpose to dispensing with forgiveness and thinking that I might want to apply the pain of this situation uh, as a friend of mine uses it, or thinking that I might use this situation as, as, an as a goad to a change in my personal behavior. I might use this situation as a challenge. I might use this situation as a lesson, but the, um, the animus that I feel in response to it may never go away and that my effort in that direction is fruitless. And so I began to really <clears throat> peel back the layers of forgiveness as an imperative, not to overturn it, but to provide dramatic gaping exceptions to it uh, for the individual. And people responded to it. And so for me, that was very helpful, you know, yeah. and, and I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is that there are certain beliefs that one could hold to that could prove very productive, even in the absence of, of faith. But in other cases, I could see whether it's, it's some variant of Christianity or whether it's some variant of, of new thought or some other system. If that, if that faith is absent, there may also be aspects of the system itself that could be counterproductive, could be unhelpful. And I, I, I would want the individual to be very open about that with him or herself. Yeah, for sure. You know, just a reminder, we're not a homogenous whole. Everything is different for everybody. Everything is circumstantial. Forgiveness, yeah, you know, and I have the same feeling about forgiveness. I, you know, I quote, do extol the virtues of forgiveness myself quite often, but um, I don't often practice it as much as I've extolled it because, um, you know, there are some things, as you said, you can't just snap your fingers and forgive certain things. And to do so would really be to take away your own humanity your own humanity to sort of try to sever the shadow from yourself and just you know pretend and that's just never good i had a similar thought this year about gratefulness as well um you know everybody's always you know whether it's in christianity new age culture wherever gratefulness is always extolled as a great virtue but gratefulness can also be a, a toxic thing itself that just keeps you in the same pattern over and over again, like the Ouroboros just eating its tail eternally, you know, where you're never, you need to really maybe make some kind of radical shift or radical break, but you're constantly reminded, well, just be grateful for what you have. And, and depending on the type of person you are, that might just kind of snap you back into submission rather than inspiring you to be like, okay, well, you know, to use a biblical term, the lion and the lamb lay down with one another. So there should be a part of our being where there is this kind of lamb-like contentedness, but then there also should be this hungry lion side that, that wants to advance and move on and, 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 and whatever, you know, do, do more with their life than what they're doing. And it seems to me that gratefulness can be used as sort of toxic. It can be used in a toxic way as well to keep people 
trapped in old patterns, you know, working jobs they hate, you know, in relationships they despise. So, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying for sure. It's not it's not a virtue across the board. And if I may, you know, I think that I mean, it's funny. I'm glad you touched upon gratefulness because gratefulness and forgiveness are two of the most often heard virtues extolled throughout the new age culture, extolled throughout all facets of Christian culture and, and, and very rarely subject to any question. In fact, one of the responses I got to my forgiveness article that I most treasured, and I think I quote this in a little preamble to the reprint of the piece is that someone said to me, she said, I'm so glad you wrote this because whenever I raise questions about forgiveness, I get pushback from people who aren't even involved in the situation themselves, as if just to question the principle is, is undermining in some way <laughs> and, and requires response. And gratefulness is a similar topic. You know, who, who among us would question gratefulness and forgiveness? It seems like questioning the virtue of washing your hands or right. eating salads. You know, it just <laughs> seems absolutely outside the realm of, of, of thinkable pushback. And, and yet I, I, I have raised similar questions about gratefulness. And I raise these not to be heterodox, but just because I would say to you, to your listeners, a tremendous relaxation comes over you when you start to confront something with radical honesty that Mm. in the past you've felt the need to perfume. Mm. And I recall Several months ago, I was interviewed by a newspaper in an English language newspaper in India about the gratitude movement. And the reporter said to me, do you think gratitude um, brings inner peace? And I said, look, I have to be entirely frank with you. I think inner peace comes from victory. I think inner peace comes from victory. And I realize, I, I, I say that not to provoke, I say that not to be heterodox, mm-hmm. because I realize how acclimated we are to push back against statements like that and say, yeah. you know, <laughs> what about, you know, th- that's temporal and, uh, you know, and, and, and you're a hungry ghost and that's mm-hmm. illusory, that's Maya, that's samsara, you know, if you're going to use Vedic language mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, there's any number of, uh, 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 likewise expressions from the Beatitudes and other part of scripture that you can use to you know, talk about, you know, what happens to somebody who stores up gold or victories and it's your soul. And that I understand all of that and I'm not being glib towards it. I'm simply raising the question because I know from my own personal experience as a fitful student on the road of life for many, many years right now, I know what victory tastes like. And I know the wonderful, wonderful, uh, salving of relaxation that victory brings over me. It doesn't necessarily mean besting somebody or, or getting one over on somebody, but it could mean, for example, you know, publishing my first book, which I didn't do until I was past the age of 40. Uh, mm-hmm. It could mean my kids seeing me uh, as, as a writer, you know, growing up, knowing me exclusively as a writer, which was the career that I had thought I left behind in my 30s and any number of other things. And I'm not being Pollyannish about this because believe me, victory could also mean a material gain or getting a job or overcoming an adversary. I mean, let's not be weak need here and insist that life is composed just of these Fred Rogers moments. And I love Fred Rogers, but you know, (laughs) we're not all Fred Rogers all the time and nor was he. And, you know, so I, I, I think that the point of questioning these things is not just to be upending in some way or to be provocative what's the use of that 
The, right. the, the point is that if the individual comes face to face with truth, with truth that is borne out in his or her own hard-won experience, mm -hmm. I cannot begin to tell you the relaxation that you feel and nobody, in the profoundest sense, and no one should be able to take that away from you because you're not supposed to savor victory, you're supposed to savor gratitude. You know, mm -hmm. uh, maybe gratitude has never been satisfying to you, and, and mm -hmm. maybe that points in the direction of truth. Follow yeah. that scent trail, you know, see what's there. No, that's really good. I wasn't going to say this because it's kind of just a personal thing, but it concerns you and what we've been talking about, and it may take us in a different direction, but that's all, that's all good. Okay. So about a year and a half ago, beginning of COVID, I happened upon, I, I don't, I think I heard you on Duncan Trussell, his podcast. I think that's probably where I first heard you and I really enjoyed what I heard. And so then I, I just looked you up on YouTube and I found some other talks you had given. And I don't remember the talk where it was, but you talked about, is the movie, the, the stalker, is that the movie, the Russian film? Stalker, yes. The stalker. Soviet science fiction movie. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard you talking about this and, um, it basically, and, and, and you can talk about that in a minute if you want, uh, but what it, I, I don't want to take up the time, but what it inspired me to do Actually, I had my iPhone playing in the background and I was taking a shower and it was kind of at a point of just, I don't know, I knew I needed to change things in my life. Like I said, I was a pastor for 12 years, but that's been many years ago now, quite a few years ago. And I was still holding on to the hope that maybe somehow, someday, maybe in the future, I could do that again, but maybe in a different way. And who knows, maybe I will. But I also knew that that thought was keeping me kind of bound in this liminal space, kind of in this hallway in between two things. And I wasn't really going anywhere because I was just kind of holding out hope that this would happen. And in the meantime, I'm working a day job and I'm speaking on the weekends and writing books and that's all good and fine. But, you know, I don't know. I was ready for something else in life to open for me. And I realized I was holding on to this and just you talking about that movie and the implications thereof led me to this point where I just was confronted with like, be honest with yourself. Just be brutally honest with yourself right now and just say whatever comes out of your mouth. And I just blurted out, I don't want to be a pastor anymore. <laughs> wow. I just, I just blurted it out. I don't want to be a pastor anymore. And I said it again and I said it again and I said it again. And the more I said it, it was like 10 billion pounds lifted off my shoulders and I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to be a pastor anymore. It was just that I thought that was the only way forward for me because it was a stable career for me for 12 years. It was the career that allowed me to you know, pay my mortgage, have a wife and three children and take care of my family. And now things are a little tighter and I'm having to do more than just one thing to keep the lunches packed and the lights on. So it was just the one thing I was holding out hope for that would maybe work out again. You know what I mean? But churches, there really aren't too many churches out there who would let somebody like me be their pastor. So at the same time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I'm better Job on description must be atheist. Yes, yes must, must be an atheist. And, right. you know, <laughs> but at the same time, hey, who knows, you know, all this kind of stuff. So uh, but man, when I said those words, it was like all this weight lifted off me because yes. I, I was there was so much mental energy being expended on just thinking about this and obsessing about it constantly. And the moment I let go of it, it was like all the energy I was wasting. It was like all these windows on my computer. I hit control, alt, delete, and there was all these programs running and I hit end task and they all closed. And now all of a sudden all of that space was freed up and all this energy came to me. And I like 
I put a towel on, but I ran upstairs and like was like telling my wife, Diana, you've got to, I, I don't want to be a pastor anymore. She's like, uh, okay, what are you talking about? But it was just like, I was so overwhelmed with this emotion in this moment. And from that moment on, all sorts of weird, wild, crazy, wacky ventures have opened up to me that while it, 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 it draws on my skills and my strengths that I have from those years is very much not those things anymore. Like I've been invited to speak <clears throat> at UFO and paranormal conventions and things like mm -hmm. this that I have no connection to what so freaking ever, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that nothing like that ever came to me in the past. But when I let go of this thing I was holding on to, it was like that energy I was expending. It was, it was, you know, repurposed and whatever. And my life has really radically transformed since that moment. And I, and I thank you for um, what you shared that kind of inspired me in that moment to do that. But it just made me think of what we were saying and, and, and just that moment of honesty, being honest with yourself, whether it's forgiveness or gratefulness or whatever, something that's just kind of holding you in stasis and keeping you exactly where you are, you know, it's not just about burning stuff down and vandalizing, but deconstruction right. is about taking something apart, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work. Sometimes it's about cracking the calcification over top of a spirit that was meant to float freely and, and releasing it and letting it be free again. And um, so I guess in, in the few minutes we have left and just, you know, you, I'm watching the clock here and being respectful of your time. Could we talk a few minutes here just about personal transformation and about <clears throat> maybe letting go of, of, of the past and moving forward and forging your own path, creating your own future, creating your own reality? Um, you know, whatever. Can we just can we just riff sure. off that for a few minutes? Yeah. I, you know, you referenced the movie Stalker, which was made in the late 1970s in the former Soviet Union. And it's incredible because in a society that was shot through with censorship and that was officially materialistic or atheistic uh, out of the Soviet film world um, comes what is arguably, at, at least, you know, in my estimation, um, the finest, most poignant, most deeply affecting movie on metaphysical themes uh, that I've ever seen. And, um, uh, that's that's thanks uh, in in part to the director Andre Tarkovsky um, uh, and the brothers Arkadian Boris uh, Strugatsky who wrote the uh, novel on which uh, Stalker is based. Um, in short, um, the premise of Stalker is that in uh, a near future, possibly post-apocalyptic landscape, uh, through the previous landing of some extraterrestrial force on earth there is this uh, technology that's been left behind on earth by this uh, et force that seems to have come and gone very quickly and this technology allows your wishes to be granted it's a it's a kind of wish machine and uh, i'm putting this all in brief but the conundrum that uh, people face with the wish machine is not only that it's difficult and dangerous to get to but it will grant you whatever you really want in life. And that couldn't be a horrifying and alienating experience because we spend our whole lives repeating dialogues to ourselves in our heads. I should yeah. be this. I am this. I like this. Whatever it is, you know, we tend to internalize enormous amounts of peer pressure, insecurity, 
rehearsed self-perceptions and we can be strangers to ourselves. So when we're confronted with what we really wish for versus what we tell ourselves we wish for, the experience can be alienating to to the point of of shattering our self-perceptions, which is what happens to at least one person uh, in the course of the movie. And and so it seems to me uh, that the greatest single lever for dramatic self-change is radical stark honesty yeah. of the exact kind that you just described. That could be called an epiphany. That could be called a conversion experience. In the term, in the uh, uh, to use the term of William James, that that can be called just a, a, a moment of just absolute stark, unconditioned honesty in which. You stop the dialogue in, in in your head, and you you tell yourself what you really want, however uncomfortable it may be, or however conditioned we've been, apropos of some of the concepts we've been describing, like temporal versus eternal values, gratitude versus victory, forgiveness versus some other alternative that might seem Nietzschean and self-determined by contrast, whatever it is. You can afford, you the listener, you the co-seeker, can afford an evening, a weekend, a morning, a night laying up in bed, whatever it is, you can afford to dispense with all the conditioned, acclimated, internal voices that have become as familiar as your own limbs and ask yourself, as you did, uh, what do I want? And if you ask yourself that question with stark honesty, the answer will almost always be surprising because what if the gambit of new thought is correct? What if there is a wish machine? What if the metaphysics of stalker uh, are right? And life does grant us some iteration of what we want. Well, it may come back to us in a very alienated form, a very unrecognizable form, precisely because we don't know who and what we are. So I think the greatest single lever that you can lay your hands on is radical, stark honesty about what you want, regardless of everything that you've been taught or how you've been taught to categorize or judge it. You can afford to dispense with that and and put yourself naked in front of that question. And it's interesting to me that you were naked, literally, in that <laughs> yeah, sense. Yeah, quite literally. Uh, yeah. I'm speaking <laughs> metaphorically, but but bravo, bravo. Yeah. <laughs> now that's beautiful. And it reminds me of, you know, my favorite Nietzschean... <clears throat> metaphors from Zarathustra, you know, his three metamorphoses of the human spirit that we, we all begin essentially as a camel who, who, these dromedarian beings who bear the burdens of others. And we think that they're our own. We think that we chose them, you know, because we, they were bequeathed to us. And then we go into the, we go into the desert and then the camel is transformed into a lion because it realizes the burdens it's been bearing have been those of the dragon called thou shalt. (laughs) And Mm. it's there that the camel is transformed into a lion and discovers its sacred no, and it roars it in the face of the dragon thou shalt. And then Nietzsche says that the final stage of metamorphosis, not the final final, but the final stage in this cycle that will repeat itself probably numerous times throughout our lives, is that of the child, where we return back to this point of, of creation and sort of serious foolishness where mm-hmm. we, we, we've learned what we... we've learned what um, it is we say no to, and now we discover the sacred yes. And we're now at this place of creation. And so for me, that moment of nakedness and honesty was kind of discovering my sacred no 
and it opened up the possibility for me to find the sacred yes and um, the sacred yes also kind of found me at the same time and so such a powerful powerful principle just of that yeah, that's, dark that's beautiful yeah yeah what i wish for myself it's what i wish for you it's what mm. i wish for all of your listeners yeah yeah uh, well, Mitch, uh, we said 45 minutes, and so I want to be respectful of your time, sir. So um, we're coming up on that mark, um, and, and don't be afraid of going over it all on my end, but on your end, I want to be respectful. But um, before we do sign off today, um, is there any uh, anything you want to leave the listeners with, any any lessons, anything that's just really kind of you know burning in your heart to, uh, to say? Well, I really appreciate the spirit of inquiry that animates this show, and I can assure you... Uh, I've had my own experiences of, of staring, you know, stark into the mirror and asking myself whether I wanted to be the thing that I had built my life around becoming at that moment. I recount some of this in my book, The Miracle Habits, which I wrote during the pandemic, uh, mm -hmm. the worst days of the pandemic. And I know how it feels. You know, it can be a feeling of terrible freefall and, and shock even, but that shock can crack you open to possibilities that you never saw were there. And even if, coming to that place of a no or a sacred yes or what have you doesn't immediately seem to objectively reorganize the events of your outer life or your relationships, I would say that you may be very, very surprised at the influences that enter your life, sometimes subtly, sometimes shockingly, when you come to that place of, of stark honesty. And the, the, the tragedy is never knowing what that place is. And so I, I just really want to repeat that encouragement to people. Yeah. Yeah. It's the letting go of the last breath that makes room for the next one. And uh, when you let go of the last, it kind of just comes on its own. You don't have to force it. Eventually you'll all actually be forced to take it. So <laughs> that's what makes letting go such a beautiful thing. Um, Mitch, thank you so much for your thank time you. today. Thank you so Pleasure. much for being on. I was really honored to have you on today. And, um, you know, if you will uh, tell everybody where they can find you, I know you're on social media, your website. Sure. Uh, yeah. um, my website is MitchHorowitz.com. I'm on mm -hmm. Twitter at Mitch Horowitz and on Instagram at Mitch Horowitz 23. And I'm very active there posting about books and events and videos. And probably around the time that this podcast airs, I'll be posting uh, my chapter on ESP research from Daydream Believer, my book in progress on Patreon. And so I, I think that's something that, that people will find, um, elucidating and interesting. Thank you so much, man. I so appreciate it. Pleasure. And, um, really enjoyed yeah, it. Thank it's you. been an honor. And um, if you've the time, I'd love to do it again sometime. Maybe we can Absolutely. get a little bit more into New Thought, maybe into um, Neville Goddard, who is always the hot topic and, and things like that. And uh, yeah, it could be a good time. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed and it. Thank you everyone thank for you. listening today. Peace. Till next time. Mm -hmm.